So there was a study conducted in uh, 1996, 1997. And uh, uh, in that study, uh, they visited uh, uh, Dr. K.L. Choudhury. He visited a lot of the death camps and he carried out a study and it was also sub submitted to the National Human Rights Commission. So it pointed out a lot of very, very disturbing facts. It was about the replacement rate among the Kashmiri pundits living in the, living in the refugee camps. So what is the replacement rate? So replacement rate is, you know, in any society, there are some individuals who are going to be dying and then there will be new individuals being born, right? And for the population to remain, by and large, static, you need a replacement rate of around 1.2 or 1.3. That means for every person who is dying, uh, another 1.2 or 1.3 new individuals should be born, okay? So whereas what is happening in... Uh, in the death camp, in, sorry, in the refugee camps, was uh, the replacement ratio was 0 0.3. That was only three individuals were being born for every 12 individuals who were dying. Okay, and if that trend continued, then the Kashmiri Hindu population uh, would have simply become extinct. Good morning, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Uh, the, the movie, The Kashmir Files, has been immensely popular, right? And then it has talked about the genocide of Kashmiri Hindus on January 19, 1990. So some of the questions that always arise are, was it a one-off incident? Was it even a genocide? Right? These are some of the questions that have been raised in the media. I will talk a little bit about the movie towards the end, but I want to start with the Sanskriti of Kashmir. So when we talk about Kashmir, the oldest references to Kashmir uh, come from the writings of Panini. So the grammarian Panini in his Ashtadhyayi, he talks about Kashmir, Kashmirika. So those are the people of Kashmir. Okay, so in the region of Kashmir, uh, he talks about them. And we also, even going before that, we have some of the recensions and the shakas of the Vedas that were composed in Kashmir and compiled in Kashmir. So Kashmir has a really old heritage, a really old culture, very old Sanskriti, going all the way back to the Vedic times. And when we come back to around uh, 300 BCE, uh, so I talk a little bit about Panini. Panini uh, lived and wrote probably around 700 or 600 BCE. We do not know his exact time, uh, but he refers to uh, Kashmir and the people of Kashmir as Kashmirika. Then when we fast forward a little bit, come back to the classical times when the Greco-Roman writers were writing, uh, which is a period from around 400 BCE all the way up to 100, 150 CE. Uh, we have writers like Ptolemy, Herodotus and others who are referring to Kashmir by various cognates, Greek cognates. They use words like Kasparis and similar sounding words to refer to Kashmir. So Kashmir has a really old legacy, which has been very central to Hinduism, which has been very, very central to Hindu culture. So this is where I wanted to start with, because uh, that's when we get a real perspective of how deep and how ancient the Kashmiri culture is. And sometimes people raise an argument, uh, should not there be a plebiscite, should not the people of Kashmir today decide uh, what their culture should be, what their uh, future should be and everything. Uh, but culture is not decided by one generation of people. Culture is not generated, decided by uh, one election or one plebiscite or any of these things. 
culture is something which we have inherited over thousands of years and that means uh, that has to be preserved and uh, we cannot take arbitrary decisions against that because uh, society is consumed by religious fundamentalism or extremism or radicalism at a particular point in time this is the first point i wanted to make and then uh, second point i would like to make regarding the sanskriti of kashmir is uh, there was a very great kashmiri uh, shaiva philosopher by the name abhinav gupta he lived around 8th or 9th century ce and then he wrote this very famous philosophy by the name pratyabhigya so he did not uh, he was not a native of kashmir itself okay he actually comes from a place in and around the ganga jamuna tob uh, which is current day mathura agra and all of these places in and around that place so uh, his ancestors that is his father or his grandfather they migrate from this region they go to kashmir they settle down and they start uh, becoming very important scholars they start writing a lot of texts and then abhinav gupta comes from their lineage but he refers to himself as a kashmiri ka too repeatedly he does that in his writings uh, because uh, kashmir is not something uh, which was seen as just a geographical center by our hindus it was also a very important center of hindu learning uh, that's why someone like abhinav gupta who originated in today's uttar pradesh uh, moves to kashmir his parents or his grandparents they moved to kashmir but he still identifies himself as kashmirika then we have this uh, famous uh, advaita philosopher uh, adi shankaracharya he originated he came from uh, what is today's kerala in south india then he travels all over he goes to kashmir and then he it becomes a very important center of learning he writes there uh, he compiles texts everything and you still have a very famous place called the shankaracharya hill uh, in srinagar even today so the reason i mentioned all of these things is the sanskriti of kashmir is very important and probably a lot more important than uh, the politics of a given point in time because politics can always change right uh, if you go back a few centuries or even a couple of 100 years there was no pakistan okay uh, but in 1947 you started having pakistan because the politics and then the dynamics of societies changed uh, so we cannot decide the course of history by ignoring our heritage by ignoring our culture and by simply focusing on the politics of a given point in time that's the reason i mentioned this so the name kashmir itself uh, comes comes from Uh, kashyaparishi okay who was a progenitor and who resided in uh, kashmir and then he is kashyaparishi is very important to hindu dharma and that's the that's where the name uh, kashmir itself comes from and one important thought uh, or one question that comes to everyone's mind is why do we have so many pandits in kashmir why not all the other jatis there are other jatis too uh, who exist in kashmir but pandits are larger in number okay so but this is for a very important reason and this is not just unique to kashmir okay uh, kashmir was a center of learning right and today when we talk of learning uh, we go to universities and most of the time the universities or colleges are right in the place where we live okay so if you are living in a small town like uh, vishakhapatnam uh, then you are going to have a bunch of colleges then and there so you are just going to go there and you are going to study and come back but in the ancient time there were only a few universities there are only a few centers of learning some of them well known to people are nalanda uh, takshashila in today's pakistan then kanchipuram in south india then you have uh, kashmir uh, in north india these are all very important centers of learning that's why a lot of people they 
moved to these places they became resident scholars and then they lived there for a few years and they studied philosophies and then they compiled texts and then they uh, uh, preached and then they founded institutions that's the reason you have a large number of pandits living in kashmir and um, uh, uh, this is not only unique to kashmir this is also true of places like lahore okay so there is a very famous historian by the name uh, andre wink he writes about uh, among other things he writes about the invasion of uh, muslims into the indian subcontinent into the sindh province and into current day lahore and all of these places and then he talks about where uh, lahore itself got its name it gets its name from uh, lava uh, son of shri rama okay so rama had twin sons lava and kusha that's why you have two places lahore and kasur in pakistan which are nearby and both of them were important centers of learning and andre wing points out that when the islamic invasions happened lahore was a very uh, important center of learning and a place where there were a large number of brahmins residing once again the reason for that was it was a center of learning so lot of pandits from other parts of india they traveled to lahore and they settled there and then you ended up having a large proportion of brahmins living there the same thing happened in kashmir a uh, lot of scholars travel from other parts of india i talked about the example of abhinav gupta uh, whose parents or grandparents they moved to kashmir and then it becomes a center of learning that's why you have a large concentration of pandits uh, who lived in kashmir for thousands of years so kashmir was 100% hindu society until the beginning of the 14th century so that's where uh, uh, mir shah Uh, he invades kashmir and he starts imposing islam on kashmiris so there are forced conversions and then uh, what we talk about uh, exodus of kashmiri pandits that happened in 1990 it was not the first time it happened that was the seventh genocide or the seventh exodus of the kashmiri pandits that happened in 1990 prior to that over the preceding 600 years there have been there have been many other exoduses there have been many other genocides of kashmiri pandits and professor k l bon talks about that in his book paradise lost uh, seven exoduses of kashmiri pandits so he recounts every one of those starting from uh, 1320 onwards all the way up to 1990 so uh, mir shah started forcing the pandits to convert to, convert to islam so those who did not convert were persecuted and then jizya was imposed upon them and then they were often slaughtered and all of these things happened but one of the most treacherous genocide happened around 1380 or 1390 ce when sikandar was the sultan and then he forced a large number of kashmiri pandits to convert and when they refused he slaughtered them and there is a place called batte mazar in srinagar uh, by the lake and that's where he slaughtered more than 100000 kashmiri pandits and then Uh, burnt them and their ashes were dissolved in uh, the lake and then uh, he cut their uh, janeyu or the sacred thread and then he piled them up and then kelban professor kelban writes that uh, they were they formed seven hillocks that many number of sacred threads were cut and then they were piled up by the banks of the lake so this happened sometime around 1380 or 1390 and every time such a genocide happened and every time Uh, persecution happened kashmiri pandits will flee kashmir they will go somewhere to the plains and then they will live there for some time and they will when situation became a little bit better they'll come back and the reason was simple for most people they cannot just like that leave their homes and go elsewhere and live 
what are they going to do for their livelihood so they will have to come back that's why kashmiri pandits often came back but every time they came back they will face persecution in kashmir uh, uh, except Ash- uh, except akbar uh, who was more tolerant compared to all the other mughal emperors he removed the jizya that was imposed on kashmiris but all the other kings who followed him jahangir shah jahan everyone they reimposed the jizya so when you look at the history of kashmir over the last uh, 600 to 700 years starting from uh, the early 14th century uh, kashmiri pandits have faced continual persecution genocides rape massacres and exoduses this has been the plight of kashmiri pandits for nearly 7 centuries so what happened in 1990 was not a one off incident it was not the first time that the kashmiri pandits were butchered it was not the first time they were ethnically cleansed it was not the first time an exodus of kashmiri pandits happened it has happened for nearly 700 years sometimes sporadically sometimes continually sometimes for short periods of time sometimes for much longer periods of time but in every one of these cases the motive has always been islamic radicalism and islamic fundamentalism because islam wanted to convert kashmir erase its history erase its sanskriti and then impose islam on all of kashmiri people including the pandits and that's how uh, these exoduses they started over the last 700 years coming to the current context what really happened on 1990 and what were the events that preceded that so when you go back uh, slightly about a decade around 1980 or so there was uh, khalistani terrorism that was going on in punjab so uh, at the time uh, bindran wale and others they used to attack the hindus they wanted to cleanse punjab of hindus and turn it into a sikh homeland by this i do not mean all the sikhs are supportive of that most of them were not uh, only a small number of sikhs supported the khalistani movement uh, but uh, the khalistani terrorists were pretty focused on cleansing punjab of hindus and then getting rid of the hindus and so there were times when Uh, hindus were shot dead by the khalistani terrorists and the khalistani terrorism was funded and supported across the, from across the border by the pakistanis and when it happened uh, the indian uh, security forces started cracking down on them so they had to expand and um, they started moving more and more towards kashmir and that's when islamic radicalism started there in kashmir as well uh, in full flow uh, in the 1980s with support and funding from pakistan so the weapons were routed through kashmir and then the terrorists were trained they were sent into kashmir and then slowly as kashmir started getting radicalized a lot of kashmiri muslims uh, started uh, uh, getting radicalized they started sending their sons to terror training camps in pakistan where they will get trained they will come back and then there was a clamor for converting kashmir uh, into not only a, a completely islamic state but also making it a part of uh, pakistan and throughout the 80s there were many cases when uh, you know pakistani flags were flown across kashmir and then even the institutions like the jnk police they were becoming increasingly radicalized and many of the times terrorists were policemen themselves so these were all documented and accounted for by jagmohan uh, 
when he was governor of Kashmir in his first stint, that was in the mid-80s. Uh, Rajiv Gandhi was the Prime Minister of India and then Jagmohan repeatedly wrote to him. He wrote about a lot of factors. He said there is increasing radicalism, uh, there is cross-border funding and training and support for Islamic terrorism and extremism in Kashmir. And then he talked about, uh, in 1986, uh, he even talked about uh, sporadic killings uh, and the persecution of Kashmiri Hindus. And all of these things were returned and uh, Rajiv Gandhi did not really care. Congress government did not care much. The reason for that was uh, Rajiv Gandhi and Farooq Abdullah were very close friends and uh, Rajiv Gandhi was not interested in upsetting the apple cord of friendship for the sake of society. So Farooq Abdullah was given free hand and on the other hand in society, uh, in Kashmir, uh, society was getting increasingly radicalized with cross-border uh, radicalism and uh, indoctrination continuing. 1988, uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto uh, gets killed in an air crash in an air crash and at that time there were large processions taken out by Kashmiri Muslim women most of them were wailing and then they were grieving as if one of their own family member had died so a lot of photographs were published for all of these things so the reason I recounted all of these things is what happened in 1990 January 19th of 1990 was the last straw that broke the camel's back it was not the first one there are a lot of incidents that happened throughout 1980s and uh, the Congress government in the center did not really care. Okay? It was not bothered about uh, terrorism that was happening there, even though they should have because they had seen what happened in Punjab in the preceding years, despite that they did not care about it. And this allowed uh, Farooq Abdullah, who was, uh, I would consider, not just a separatist, but also the terror mastermind, because he was the person who repeatedly released terrorists. So security forces uh, will capture Pakistan-trained terrorists and put them in prison, and uh, Farooq Abdullah will come out and release them. On one occasion, uh, in, in the late 1980s, I think it was in 1989, he released about 70 of those dreaded terrorists who had been in prison, and then many of them would go out and kill Kashmiri Pandits in the coming years. So in 1990, uh, sorry, before that in 1989, um, VP Singh comes to power, but he comes to power only on the 2nd of December 1989. And uh, that is only about four or five weeks before uh, the genocide on January 19th happens. So he does not have a large role to play uh, in this. There is not much he could have done uh, because, you know, you cannot sleep for a decade and allow all of this radicalism and extremism to grow and uh, fester in society and take deep roots and expect somebody who has just come to power to come and cleanse the society in just three or four weeks. That's not going to happen. But uh, on the other hand, VP Singh was very much part of the Congress in the preceding years, and he was very much part and parcel of uh, all of the apathy that Congress government showed uh, towards Kashmiri pundits in the preceding years. So in that regard, he is guilty. But the first person who is guilty in all of this uh, is Rajiv Gandhi. And the second person who is completely guilty about all of these things is Farooq Abdullah. So these two people were primarily responsible for turning a blind eye to, in the case of Rajiv Gandhi, it was turning a blind eye to the rising tide of Islamic radicalism. In the case of Farooq Abdullah, he was directly responsible for instituting genocide. And why do I say that? On the 18th of January, Farooq Abdullah resigns. He resigns in protest because Jagmohan has been now 
designated and uh, appointed as the governor of Kashmir. And Farooq Abdullah doesn't want him. So he says, if he is nominated, uh, appointed as the governor, then I will resign. So he resigns on the 18th of January. Then on the 19th of January, the massive attacks on Kashmiri pundits happens. And then it starts with announcements across the mosques all over Kashmir. In every mosque, they make the announcement, uh, convert, die or leave, meaning convert to Islam uh, or get killed or leave. But it's not just leave, it's leave your women behind, leave the pretty women behind and then men get out of Kashmir. So this was this was a very organized campaign. Uh, this did not happen overnight. This would have taken immense planning over several years. And then uh, uh, in a very coordinated effort, these announcements were made right after the day after Farooq Abdullah resigns. That's why I think it's very reasonable to argue, very reasonable to conclude that it was Farooq Abdullah who was the mastermind of this genocidal attack on Kashmiri Hindus on the 19th of January, 1990. And when these attacks happen, a large number of Kashmiri Muslims were themselves taking part in this. So uh, one of the characters uh, that's shown in the movie, uh, Kashmiri Files, is a terrorist, right? By the name uh, Bita Karate. Uh, that's his real name. And Bita Karate, towards the end, he's the person who shoots 24 or 25 Kashmiri Hindus in cold blood, including women and children, and uh, dumps them into a, uh, an open grave. So he was arrested. And then he was brought into, uh, he, he was kept in prison in Tihar jail for several years and he was even interviewed. And he talks about uh, how everybody in Kashmir was aware of the genocide that was going to happen, except the Kashmiri Hindus. That was because in the mosques and in the madrasas and all of these places, uh, there was a very well-coordinated whisper campaign that was carried out and they were aware of it. Then Bittakarate also talks about how a lot of the Kashmiri Muslims were dressed up for the occasion on the 19th of January, as if they were attending a festival, and then how many of them participated in the attack and the killing and genocide of Kashmiri Hindus. So in that regard, the, Kash the Kashmiri Muslims are collectively guilty. And when I make this statement, it uh, becomes a little bit uncomfortable for most people, including Hindus, right? Because it's very easy for us to point out and that someone, an individual like Farooq Abdullah, was guilty of carrying out genocide. Most of us will agree with it. It's easy for us to point out that the Muslim terrorists, the Islamic terrorists and radicals carried out these attacks. Most of us will agree with it. That's, that doesn't bother us beyond a point. But when we say that Kashmiri Muslims are collectively guilty of committing the genocide of Kashmiri Hindus, it makes most people uncomfortable. Even Hindus become very uncomfortable about that. So I want to explain that a little bit more. I am going to take two or three examples to drive home that point. Let's start with untouchability. So in India and in the subcontinent for the reason, the practice of untouchability was in vogue over the last three or four centuries. Okay. So, uh, and it's not part of, it's not an int intrinsic part of Hinduism. Okay, I'm going to take one example. What's the most common word uh, used for untouchables? 
the word used for untouchables is paraya okay uh, paraya is the term that has become synonymous synonymous with untouchability uh, and uh, paraya when you go back to history paraya or a, a scheduled caste uh, an erstwhile untouchable caste from the state of tamil nadu in india when you go back about a couple of thousand years you have a genre of literature called the sangam literature and sangam literature talks about four jatis who are uh, most prestigious in society and one of those four is the paraya community so which tells us that the parayas had a place of pride in society and then they were a dominant community in society 2000 years ago before all the colonial uh, invasions by the muslims and subsequently by the europeans happened then you fast forward a little bit probably around 200 a ce or something when the famous philosopher uh, tiruvalluvar uh, writes his text called the tirukkural so tirukkural is a tamil text it's a philosophical text one of the most celebrated texts in india and in hinduism and uh, tiruvalluvar comes from the paraya paraya jati uh, even today uh, the priests among the paraya community are known as the valluva pandaram okay so valluvar is actually a title it's a uh, it's a upajati among the parayas and then the, he is known as tiruvalluvar tiru means the equivalent of tiru in sanskrit and hindi would be shri right so it's a very honorific title so he is known as tiruvalluvar because he comes from that community and then his uh, philosophical text remains one of the most celebrated texts not only in tamil but in all of uh, indian subcontinent this once again tells us that uh, when you go back in time the paraya community had a place of pride in society so you fast forward even until the 14th or 15th century uh, there was an incident when the paraya community moves from tamil nadu to kerala to a small place called valluva nadu in kerala and then they found an empire and then the brahmins from gokarna come there and then they initiate them as kshatriyas so this once again tells us that even when you go back 5 600 years ago uh, some of the communities are today uh, known to be uh, untouchables and whose name itself has become synonymous with untouchability actually had a place of pride in hindu society so untouchability is a relatively recent phenomenon probably 3 400 years old uh, but it was a terrible practice and when that practice happened for whatever reason right primarily due to colonial rule primarily due to crushing poverty primarily due to agri- agrarian practices that had turned predatory under colonial rule the rest of hindu community also practice untouchability and we don't say that only a few hindus were responsible for treating the scheduled castes as untouchables we blame all of society we uh, apportion collective guilt on all of society and i think that's just because the reason is when the rest of society is not speaking up and when the rest of society is not pointing out hey wait a minute why are we treating these communities as untouchables in the past uh, they have produced some of the finest philosophers that hindu dharma has known and then you know they have had a place of pride in society in fact they were among the most celebrated communities in society why are we treating them like that nobody asked the question okay society had fallen into ignorance and they are still collectively guilty so we point out that rest of hindu society treated the scheduled castes as untouchables so we apportion collective guilt let me take another example under the third reich uh, in germany when the nazis were in power when hitler was in power uh, jews uh, then uh, 
gypsies that's the name they used for roma people uh, so all of these people were killed they were sent to the gas chambers and there was a terrible holocaust of 6 million people and we don't point out that only certain individuals committed this we say the german society was collectively guilty and that was for a very good reason because a practice like the holocaust did not happen overnight and it was a result of uh, anti-semitism that was repeatedly preached in christianity that was taught in the churches and that was imbibed and internalized by all the german people so when uh, when the uh, jews and the gypsies were, were captured rounded up and then they were sent in cattle cattle cars to death camps in sobibor um auschwitz and all of these places the rest of germans did not even care they turned a blind eye and they did not even stop there they then went and occupied the homes uh, that were originally owned by the jews they took away their property they stole their wealth they stole their art paintings and everything so we hold the german people collectively guilty for the holocaust of the jews and gypsies let's take another example uh slavery in north america so over 12 million blacks were captured in africa they were brought in as slaves uh, by white christians who had migrated from europe to america and christianity repeatedly taught that uh, blacks were cursed people they were not cursed people and then these people had internalized the belief they pro- they brought the ba- black people they treated them worse than animals they were made into slaves they were denied even the most basic human rights and uh, they were often the families were separated so if there was a father mother and a child they could separate the mother from the child and the father and sell her off into slavery somewhere else this is how the family system was broken up among the black people now not all white men held slaves only a very small number of white people actually held slaves but the rest of white society turned a blind eye to slavery and supported that indirectly so we hold all of americans white americans guilty of committing the sin of slavery so collective guilt is in in many situations totally justified when a large number of people are victimized and the rest of society turns a blind eye to that so by the same yardstick uh, kashmiri hindus were just about 2% of the population of kashmir 98% were muslims and the rest of muslim society turned a blind eye to the persecution of kashmiri hindus in many cases they actively participated in the persecution of kashmiri hindus to give a couple of example on january 19 1990 i already talked about how a large number of uh, mosques made the call for convert die or leave to kashmiri hindus and not one kashmiri muslim objected to this not one kashmiri muslim boycotted the mosques that made these calls and it did not even bother their conscience so if you are going to blame the germans if you are going to blame the upper caste hindus and if you are going to blame uh, the white slave owners of north america and others uh, for collective guilt then we should also hold kashmiri muslims collectively guilty then when the kashmiri hindus were uh, the genocide happened and the exodus happened there were widespread rape and butchering of kashmiri hindus many of them had to flee and live in uh, refugee camps in jammu and in delhi most of them in jammu some of them in delhi too 
What happened to their property? The Kashmiri Muslim neighbors encroached upon their property. They took over their property. And then in some cases, they just wanted to play it safe uh, because they were expecting Kashmir to become a part of Pakistan very soon. So many of them will travel down to Jammu. They'll come to the refugee camps. And then they will talk to uh, the erstwhile neighbors, the Kashmiri pundits, who are now living in the refugee camps. And they will tell them, uh, look, uh, what happened there was terrible. We have taken good care of your home. Well, we have encroached upon those homes. And we would like to buy those homes from you. And then they'll pay small pittance, like 10,000 rupees or 20,000 rupees for a home that was probably worth 8 lakh, 10 lakh rupees, sometimes 20 lakh rupees. Even the furniture inside the home sort of cost pay more than 10 or 20,000 rupees. But they would offer those token amounts and then they will get the deeds transferred in their name. Why did they do that? And why did the Kashmiri Pandits sell those homes? Because the Kashmiri Pandits were desperate. Uh, many of them had been living in the refugee camps. And in the refugee camps, a large number of them had died. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, there were studies conducted. Uh, there was one study that was conducted about a refugee camp near Jammu that had 1,200 families, but not a single toilet or a shovel. So most of them, they had to just go into the woods for using the toilet and, uh, you know, go without shower several days. So this was a community that had been highly educated, uh, that had uh, been holding, uh, you know, uh, respectable jobs as professors, teachers, uh, government servants, etc., engineers, and all of these things. And many of these were now forced to live in the refugee camp. There was no source of income. And then they were now desperate to educate their children. So they were willing to do anything, uh, sell off their property. If it brings them 10 or 20,000 rupees in 1990, that would have still been a decent amount of money that will keep them going for a few months. They were doing it. So they were desperate. But why did the Kashmiri Muslim neighbors not just encroach upon the home? And why did they get the deeds converted in their name? The reasons there were two reasons for that. Okay, one of the reasons was by late 1980s, Pakistani currency was in vogue and in circulation inside Kashmir, and this is shown in one of the scenes in the movie as well. You know, when you go to a vegetable hawker, uh, 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 Mithun Chakravarti, he uh, gives Indian rupees, but he receives change in Pakistani rupees. So. Pakistani currency was already in circulation and many of them thought, since we are going to become part of Pakistan, what are we going to do with the Indian rupees? Okay. So, and the second reason for that was, uh, Pakistan had pumped a large number of counterfeit Indian currency uh, into Kashmir. And uh, uh, with the help of conniving local bankers, uh, because I mentioned in the beginning that the local banks, local institutions, government institutions, even the police had become completely taken over by the terrorists. And because of that, a lot of this counterfeit currency had made, had made its way into bank accounts. And these people uh, had, if they were going to become part of Pakistan, then they had no utility for Indian rupees, Indian currency. And if some of that was counterfeit, then they still did not have any uh, need for that. So they had to get rid of both. And now handing it over, and then getting a deed legally transferred in that name was worth it. So that was the primary reason many of them traveled and paid a small pittance and got the deeds converted to their name. It did not stop there. So going all the way back, even after the 1990 exodus happened, 
uh, fast forward until 1996-1997, uh, there were occasional reports uh, written in uh, the local newspapers, in the English as well as in the local language newspapers in Kashmir, about uh, others, the Kashmiri Muslims, burning down whatever property was left behind by the Kashmiri Hindus and which had not been encroached upon by others. So this continued into the 1990s and still nobody protested. And nobody among the Kashmiri Muslims said what he did was something terribly wrong. Then fast forward a little bit, 2001, uh, Farooq Abdullah, uh, he passes the Roshni Act. And uh, what is Roshni Act? Roshni Act said, uh, if you had taken over uh, the property of Kashmiri Hindus, then you can pay a small amount and uh, tax to the government and probably a bribe to, to Farooq Abdullah, and then you can get it transferred to your name. And this was something very unique. This did not even happen in Nazi Germany. In Nazi Germany, the Germans went and took over the property of the uh, Jews while Hitler was in power. But once Hitler was killed, once the Nazis fell, uh, Germans did not legislate to legitimize the loot of the Jewish property. This only happened in Kashmir. And that's what makes the Kashmiri Muslims collectively guilty. Because throughout the 80s, they were part and parcel of uh, the growing Islamic terrorism. They sided with it. They sided with Pakistan. They abandoned their own Sanskriti, their own culture. And then they were now getting radicalized. And that makes them guilty. Then second, they sent their own children to get trained as terrorists and come back and commit heinous crimes against Indian society. That was second guilt. Third, uh, in 1990, when the calls were made from the mosque, it was coordinated effort. And this did not happen without all of the Kashmiri Muslims or a very large number of them being aware of them. And this has been confessed to by someone like Bita Karate, the terrorist himself. And that makes them once again collectively guilty. And then uh, when the call for convert, die or leave were made, large number of Kashmiri Muslims who had neighbors pounced on their, uh, pounced on Kashmiri Hindus uh, who, had the, who had been their own neighbors and attacked them, killed them and everything. And then they took over their property. And then this continued until 1996-97. And by 2001, they legislated. And nobody questioned, why are we legislating to legitimize a loot? They are very happy to take over the property because they did not want the Kashmiri Hindus to come back. And in fact, even into the 2000s, letters were written in letters to editors were written in the newspaper saying that we have eradicated the cancer from Kashmir. The cancer refers to Kashmiri Hindus, Kashmiri Pandits. And we don't want the cancer to come back to Kashmir. Okay. So Kashmiri Muslims did not want and they did not expect the Kashmiri pundits to come back and they were more than happy to take over their property after cleansing them ethnically. This is what makes them collectively guilty. Now let's turn to the question uh, that has been brought up by a uh, lot of leftists, a uh, lot of critics, uh, which is to say, was it really a genocide? Okay, many of them will go to the extent of considering, okay, that was ethnic cleansing, but that was not genocide. So was it really a genocide? Let me bring up the definition from United Nations. And uh, so this is from the uh, United Nations Office on Genocide Prevention and Responsibility to Protect. Okay, so let's scroll down. 
look at their definition. So this is their uh, definition. Okay, this is the convention. This is the globally accepted definition of genocide. And it reads, Article 2 reads, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following, any of the following, not all, any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. Okay. So in this case, Kashmiri Pandits were both a religious and a ethnic group and hence uh, they qualify as potential victims. And then one of the, there is five criteria. Okay. If any one of those is met, then it would qualify as genocide. Let's go through that. Number one, killing members of a group. Yes, a large number of Kashmiri pundits were raped, they were killed and everything. Okay. But it did not stop there. Okay. So there was a study conducted in 1996-1997. Uh, and uh, uh, in that study, uh, they visited uh, uh, Dr. K. L. Choudhury. He visited a lot of the death camps and he carried out a study and it was also sub submitted to the National Human Rights Commission. So it pointed out a lot of very, very disturbing facts. It was about the replacement rate among the Kashmiri pundits living in the, living in the refugee camps. So what is the replacement rate? So replacement rate is, you know, in any society, there are some individuals who are going to be dying and then there will be new individuals being born. Right? And for the population to remain, by and large, static, you need a replacement rate of around 1.2 or 1.3. That means for every person who is dying, uh, another 1.2 or 1.3 new individuals should be born. Okay. So whereas what was happening in uh, in the death camp, in, sorry, in the refugee camps was uh, the replacement ratio was 0.3. That was only three individuals were being born for every 12 individuals who were dying. Okay. And if that trend continued, then the Kashmiri Hindu population uh, would have simply become extinct. Then second, most of the deaths that were happening were happening in the age group of 20 to 44. So that's the age group when you're most productive, uh, you know, uh, not only to go and work, but also to biologically procreate. So most of the Kashmiri Hindus in the refugee camps were dying in the age group of 20 to 44. Okay, that means uh, with a lower birth rate and with an increased death rate, that too happening in the age group of 20 to 44, that means it's going to accelerate the extinction of the community. Then third that was happening was among the Kashmiri Hindu women who were in the death camps, 13%, one three, 13% of them were attaining menopause by the age of 34 or 35. And another 30%, three zero, were attaining menopause by the age of around 43 or 44. Okay. So this means yeah, nearly half of the Kashmiri Pandit women were losing their fertility at a very young age compared to the rest of the population. Okay. This again would have speeded up the extinction of the community. So this means this is directly killing the members of a group. Okay. Uh, killing doesn't happen only by putting a knife to the throat and uh, slaughtering that person, but you commit other acts, uh, you know, by starving them to death, by preventing their procreation, uh, by accelerating their deaths by other means, all of these things should be considered as intentional killing of a group. Okay, That's why these were done with the intent to destroy. And that's exactly what happened in the case of the Kashmiri Hindus. And 
just uh, sub point A alone qualifies as a genocide of Kashmiri Hindus. And was it an intent? It was absolutely an intent because uh, all I would challenge is if somebody thought okay, that anyone would go to a refugee camp uh, and then lead a comfortable life, should just do this. This is a challenge I'll put forth to any leftist or to any Kashmiri Muslim. Ask your wives and children to go to Jammu railway station and live on the platform for just three days. Not one of them will agree to that. And the moment you make that suggestion, you will get divorced. So the reason is, even to live in the comforts of a railway platform where you get food, where you are just going to live for three days so you can carry enough money with you. You have restrooms and all, you know, washrooms and everything. So you have all the comforts available, at least to some extent, you won't do that. Now think of those who are going and living in the refugee camps and you knew what the plight there was. And uh, that means you knew many of them are going to die. And this is also showcased in one of the scenes in the movie where Mufti Muhammad Saeed uh, who is the home minister, he visits one of the refugee camps in the 90s, in the mid-90s, and then he's callous. Okay? And then uh, he point, when, when somebody points out a lot of our people are dying in the heat, he says that's going to happen because all these centuries you are living in the cold climate of Kashmir and now you have come down to the heat of the plains and many of you will die. Okay, That means they knew that when the Kashmiri Hindus are ethnically cleansed and chased out of Kashmir, Okay, a large number of them will die because of abject conditions. So that actually proves the intent to destroy. So just the bullet point number one, uh, bullet point A, killing members of a group, uh, based on the points I just uh, summarized, that makes it a qualified genocide of Kashmiri pundits. Then look at number two, causing serious uh, bodily and mental harm to the members of the group. Yes, that happened. Uh, the same study I earlier pointed out, it talks about a large number of Kashmiri pundits who were living in the refugee camps suffering from PTSD, okay, post-traumatic stress disorder. But they had no means to go and get any treatment. There were cases where uh, individual doctors would visit the refugee camps and try to treat them. But most of us know that treating something like a post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, uh, girl children suffering from uh, uh, stress-related hormonal disorders, etc., requires very significant treatment. None of that was available to them. And uh, so this is causing serious bodily harm and mental harm to the members of the group. Once again, that qualifies as genocide by the definition of United Nations. I can give one more example. A large number of Kashmiri Hindus were assaulted, their property stolen, many of them killed, hundreds of them were raped. This is direct bodily harm. And that's exactly the reason why the Kashmiri Pandits fled Kashmir on the 19th of January 19. Once again, under Clause B of the United Nations definition, it was a genocide of Kashmiri Pandits. C. Deliberately inflicting on the groups conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Once again, the examples I cited, uh, you know, chasing them away, uh, raping them and stealing their property, plunging them into abject poverty and creating a situation where their uh, uh, replacement rate is one-fourth of the normal replacement rate. All of these things are deliberate acts and all of these once again qualify as genocide. And D, imposing measures 
intended to prevent births within the group. It was not directly imposed, but it was indirectly imposed. And uh, United Nations doesn't make the distinction between direct and indirect imposition. Direct imposition is uh, sterilizing them forcibly, okay? Uh, like what the Nazis used to do to uh, a lot of people, like those who were mentally challenged, etc. That was direct imposition. But imposing measures indirectly also qualifies. And in this case, uh, sending them to uh, under extremely stressful conditions, sending them to the refugee camps qualifies as imposing measures to prevent births within the group. So four out of five definitions, by four out of five definitions, this was a genocide of Kashmiri Hindus. And even according to United Nations uh, criteria, only one of these following definitions had to be met. Whereas in the case of Kashmiri Pandits, four, eight, four out of five have been met. So it was a clear case of Kashmiri Genesee. And before I close the speech, I want to address one more question that's often brought up by uh, leftists, primarily by leftists, and to some extent by the Kashmiri Muslims too. So they bring up the question, uh, yes, Kashmiri, sometimes they will concede. When you push them to the wall, they'll concede, yes, Kashmiri uh, Hindus suffered. Uh, there was an ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Hindus. They won't agree to genocide, but I have demonstrated beyond doubt it was the genocide of uh, Kashmiri Hindus. And then they will admit, well, there was an ethnic cleansing of uh, Kashmiri Hindus, but they will also immediately point out, but a large number of Kashmiri Muslims also died. True, a large number of Kashmiri Muslims also died. I'm not denying that. Okay. However, who's to blame for that? In the case of Kashmiri Hindus, uh, they did nothing okay, to invite what happened to them. Okay? They were law-abiding citizens. They were peaceful citizens. Okay? They never lifted a gun. Okay? And then they were following their own culture in their own homes, in their own homeland, which they had inhabited for thousands and thousands of years. And they were targeted only because of one reason, that they were Hindus. And then they were victims of Islamic extremism, radicalism and terrorism. In the case of Muslims, they fall under a few categories, those who were victims. One of them were uh, those who worked for the government and whom the uh, terrorists suspected to be informants and they came and executed them. I feel sorry for them. And then there were rare cases where a few Kashmiri Muslims uh, might have expressed sympathy to Hindus, but those are extremely rare. Okay, And then they were not by any means prevalent or uh, uh, occurring all the time or in a sustained basis. But in some cases they did and then they were executed by the terrorists and I sympathize with them. But then they were really small in number. Most of them died because Kashmiri Muslims embraced Islamic radicalism and then they sent their own children to Kashmir, to, to Pakistan to get trained as terrorists and then they sustain terrorism in their own homeland. And then when terrorism takes hold, uh, then large number of people are going to get killed, Okay, either because of fights between various terror groups, because these terror groups were not always uh, uh, you know, seeing eye to eye. One terror group will take out members of another terror group that happened. And in other cases, the army or the police will act against terrorists and that's perfectly justified any civilized society law-abiding society will do that and uh, some of them were killed but not one Kashmiri Muslim not one Kashmiri Hindu would have been killed 
if Kashmiri Muslims had not taken to Islamic radicalism. So while I do sympathize with any person who died or who suffered because of uh, terrorism in Kashmir Valley over the decades, we had to be absolutely clear of one fact. Okay? So uh, in the case of Kashmiri Hindus, they were victims out and out. In the case of Kashmiri Muslims, they embraced, they sided with Pakistan, they embraced terrorism, and then they sent their own children to get trained as terrorists. And as a consequence of that, some of them suffered. I pity them too, but at the same time, I don't want to equate them with Kashmiri Pandits who suffered for only one reason, because of their religion. And a closing note uh, about this movie. When I went to watch this movie uh, in California, uh, I was very keenly comparing it with Schindler's List. Okay, some of you might have watched the movie Schindler's List. Uh, you know, it came out in the 90s and it was about the Holocaust, right? And then uh, one thing that struck me was the Kashmir Files was way more nuanced and way more powerful than Schindler's List. And here's the reason, okay? The reason is in Schindler's List, from the word go, you know who the evil characters are. Okay, the Nazis are the evil characters. You knew that from the word go. Okay, And then you knew that Schindler was trying to protect the innocent people, the Jews. Okay, And Schindler was the good man. Okay, You knew that from the beginning. Okay, So there was no tension. There was no, uh, uh, you know, seesaw balance of, you know, who's going to win, who's going to prevail. Okay, So it was very clearly known. Okay, this is the side of good. This is the side of evil. That was very clearly known from the beginning. Whereas in the Kashmir Files, uh, it's so brilliantly made. Agnihotri has made it so brilliantly. You know, the leftist professor, the JNU professor in this movie, it's called AMU. So, you know, ANU. So, so she is made into an extremely powerful character. Okay. At every turn of the event, in every scene of the scene, she comes across as so powerful. And you feel actually sitting and watching the movie, you feel actually despondent. You feel who's going to prevail. Okay. Because I think to me, the hallmark of a powerful movie, a nuanced movie, is something which has very, very balancing characters. Okay, even the evil is portrayed as extremely powerful. Okay, so that's the uh, deep tradition that Hinduism has. Because, for example, if you take the Ramayana or the Mahabharata, take Ramayana for example. Uh, you know, uh, Rama is the force for good, and Ravana is the force for evil. But when you look at the uh, text, uh, it's not that you don't get to see that from the word go. Okay, so Ravana is also uh, you know, a learned Brahmin, okay, Lana, Ravana is also a Shiva Bhakta and he is also a good administrator and everything. And so, you know, it's not a unidimensional presentation that makes a movie powerful, but it's a multidimensional presentation that makes it nuanced and powerful. And that's what the Kashmir Files is all about. And this is a movie everyone should watch. And, uh, you know, I thought I'll share my perspective on that. And uh, thank you very much. Any questions? Happy to take. Um, maybe mine is just an observation or rather just a comment more than a question because there's so much that you said and we've learned and read about it, and especially I have come more in contact with the subject in the last 15 years. And um, it, it's heartbreaking uh, what has happened. But you know, when we think about it, a very small number of uh, invaders came. And you think, you know, there was a huge population Anywhere you talk about in India, where it's all has happened, why couldn't they just overcome this 10,000, whatever it was? There were so many kingdoms with vast armies. 
Why didn't they do it? Maybe I, we digress from the Kashmir situation. But even in, uh, okay, so I let, let that aside. You know, that's something that I have to ponder on and think about it. But with, with regard to Kashmir, all these Kashmiri Muslims, their ancestors are also all Hindus. They didn't all come from outside. And Correct. what is it, you know, that when a Kashmiri Hindu lives so peacefully according to their culture and traditions and all, what is it that once they become, they get converted, what is it that makes them into these monsters? No, I, I, think, I think those are really good questions. Let me try to address both of them. The first one, uh, did the invaders prevail overnight? They did not. Okay, so uh, this is something, you know, uh, the eminent scholar Sitaram Goyal, he writes about in his book, Heroic Resistance of Hindus to All of These Invasions. So uh, to summarize really quick, you know, uh, Islamic invasions started in the Sindh, according to the standard history, it started in the 8th century, in the beginning of the 8th century, right, when Qasim invades the Sindh. Okay. So whereas uh, Islam, Islamic kingdoms, don't take root in India for another 400 years. Okay. For 400 years, Hindus keep fighting. Okay, Hindus keep resisting. Okay, this did not happen in any other part of the world. You take Iran, you take all of Arabia. Okay, you take Turkey, you take even Spain and other places that fell to Islam. They all fell within 20, 30, 40 years. Nothing more than that, right? And uh, they were simply pushover. Okay, when the Islamic armies went out, uh, they were simply pushover. Okay, and uh, in the case of India, Hindus fought valiantly. They resisted time and again for nearly 400 years. Okay. But again, any war is at the end of the day a war of attrition. Okay, Because when the invaders were coming, in the case of Islamic invaders, uh, you know, they were jihadis. Okay, So they were motivated only by one thing. You go and then you fight a war. If you win, you are going to loot their gold, their women, take them as sex slaves and bring them back. That was their motivation. Okay, You can rape the women and you can loot their wealth. Okay, Kill the men. In case you die, then you go to heaven, okay, where you will get 72 virgins. Okay? So either way, they had nothing to lose. Okay? And then they were more than willing to uh, you know, uh, get on the saddle and then invade India and fight repeated wars time and again. Whereas Hindus who were defend, defending their kingdom, they had built a society. It was the most prosperous society in the world. That's why everybody was trying to invade India. Okay. And it was the most prosperous society. It was the center of learning. Like today, you know, we talk of a Stanford or a, uh, you know, a Princeton or anything as a center of learning uh, in modern world. In the ancient world, it were the Indian universities like the Nalanda, the Takshashila, Kanchipuram, Kashmir. Then you go to a place like Patadakal or Aihole. So those were all the centers of architecture. Okay. So these were all the uh, ancient uh, world's universities okay and india was center of learning so indians hindus had spent a lot of time uh, creating knowledge building up society and everything so when you fight a war of defense it's also a war of attrition okay so and over a period of time you slowly start bleeding 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 and after 200 300 400 years eventually you get weaker okay so this is what happened so uh, so this is one and then to your second question uh, Kashmiri Muslims were also Hindus. That's correct. That's why I started the Sanskriti of uh, everyone having the one of the most, uh, you know, deeply respected uh, and uh, deeply cherished cultures. Okay, in Kashmir, okay, uh, whether they are Hindus or Muslims, because Islam came only in the recent centuries. 
okay and then uh, whereas uh, their hindu heritage their sanskriti is thousands of years old okay so but what makes them behave the way they did okay the reason is islam okay so islam uh, i'll just introduce the word here mimetic virus i have written about that a lot in my books uh, for example uh, most of you are familiar with the word genes right so why do children resemble their parents okay they resemble their parents because they inherit their genes okay so because you inherit their genes you biologically resemble your parents but now the question is let's say you are from punjab right so if you are from punjab okay you speak let's say with a particular accent whether you speak hindi okay or you speak english you speak with a particular accent okay and if i am from uh, chennai from tamil nadu then i speak english or hindi or tamil or anything with a particular accent okay but your accent of english will be similar to that of your punjab punjabi neighbors and your punjabi friends so or your attire okay the way you comb your hair the way you wear your bindi the way you you know uh, whether you wear salwar or you wear sari and all these things you know these all will resemble what your neighbors do okay and why is that because we imitate each other in society okay which is very common thing that's why we have fashion right we have fashion because fashion is all about imitating okay so you want to look like a particular actor or you want to look like uh, you know virat kohli or something like that right so and hence uh, why do, how do we imitate each other just like a biological trait is inherited by genes a social trait is copied from one to other through memes meme okay that's why we use the word memes right and then we copy memes in social media that's what it is okay it's about copying okay so some of the memes are harmless okay so you know most of time you know how what accent we talk with it's harmless it doesn't matter there's no good accent or bad accent right you know uh, you, you may be from uh, uh, odisha and you will speak with hindi with a certain accent you'll be from punjab you'll speak with another accent who cares okay some are even beneficial okay because some practices when you copy from each other like for example uh, how you respectfully address one another it's a good thing because it uh, cultivates vinaya in your heart you know it uh, introduces hitam in society everything it's a good thing but some of the memes are also harmful okay some of the memes memes will alter our state of mind okay and then it will warp our world view okay and then it will uh, delude ourselves and these are called uh, virulent memes or mimetic viruses okay and islam is a mimetic virus because what islam teaches is islam teaches what does it start with okay the kalma starts with allah is the only god which means all the other gods are false and then muhammad is the uh, final prophet okay which means all the other rishis sages you know whether it is uh, shankaracharya whether it is ramanujacharya whether it is abhinav gupta whether it is uh, you know guru nanak whether it is uh, uh, you know uh, shri narayana guru whether it is uh, ramana maharishi they are all false that's what islam teaches right it teaches your rama krishna shiva everyone is false okay then it says uh, you cannot go and worship in Uh, kedarnath or badrinath because those are all uh, false worship and those all have to be demolished now if you are a muslim and then if you have been brought up from childhood to believe that the quran is revelation from allah and it is the only true revelation and everything is false and if you are in brainwash you will actually start believing that okay and then islam also teaches uh, surah 2 i think it is verse 161 it teaches you know waging jihad is a fard fard is a religious duty okay so that means uh, 
Now, once you become radicalized as a Muslim, okay, then you start seeing these things as correct or even religiously mandated duties. Okay, that's why your worldview gets warped and then it is perverted and you can do terrible things. Okay, you can go, you know, uh, uh, rape women just because they belong to another religion. You can butcher them. You can take them into slavery and sell them in, off into slavery. Do all these things and you not feel guilty about it because after all, those people are anyway going to hell when they are dead. And Allah has mandated that you go and fight jihad against these people and you are carrying out your religious duty. No, it's just beggar's belief, you know, that from a highly civilized society that you go to a cult mentality, you know, I mean, forcefully converted and then let your children be uh, further converted and further um, radicalized. You know, I mean, it, it just bo makes my blood boil. And I just do not understand even in this day and age you know people are willingly accepting what i call a cult mm. second largest cult in the world yeah is that after christianity no you're yeah. you're right no, no this is an important point right another important point so let me also uh, respond it's a very good question see what happens is in neuroscience there is something called persuasibility okay uh, persuasibility means how can we persuade someone right so the persuasibility declines once you reach the age of eight, after that, it starts going down. Okay, Meaning it's hard to persuade someone about something uh, once you have reached the age of eight, especially in matters of religion. Okay, So take Islam, since uh, true of Christianity too, but in the case of uh, today's speech, it's Islam. A child is from cradle till the age of eight. The child is already brainwashed. Okay? So uh, recently I was speaking about the jihad controversy in uh, Karnataka, okay, and then in that I pointed out Karnataka has more than more than nine hundred madrasas, okay, and then they have curriculum where they teach children, okay, even before they have entered fourth or fifth grade. That is, a child is you know eight or nine years old, right? That's what a fourth or fifth grade child is, okay, and she is already indoctrinated in the tenets of Islam, okay, and then made to believe in all of those things, okay. Now, what is happening is an asymmetric engagement of children okay so these children are uh, indoctrinated brainwashed by the parents by the mullahs and uh, by their madrasas from childhood until the age of eight or nine by the time you know their worldview is completely warped okay now they are not willing to listen listen to a reasonable uh, explanation of islam or a critique of islam and they are not even willing to consider that uh, hinduism and Hindu traditions are part of their own Sanskriti. They are not interested in listening to that. And they work on it. So that's why I think, yes, uh, uh, your anger is completely understandable, completely justified. But we need to start thinking beyond that because uh, if we don't start educating, uh, you know, a large number of Muslims in, the, in today's context, it's the Kashmiri Muslims, right? And then their children. And then we leave them to the mercy of the madrasas, their parents and the uh, 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 mullahs. Then the problem is only going to get worse as time goes by. Uh, after the film was released, there was, uh, you know, much political double crossing happening. Like you had Sharad Pawar giving a statement that the BP Singh government was in power during the genocide of Kashmiri uh, pundits. And Mufti Muhammad Sayyid, who became the home minister uh, with the help of the BJP. So, uh, do you have any comments on this? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I think that's a good question. I think we should answer those questions, right? So, like I pointed out, 
the genocide happened on the 19th of January 1990. Okay. So VP Singh came to power on the 2nd of December 1989. That's like five weeks before. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so uh, or five or six weeks before. Okay, that's it. Okay. So six weeks, you if you want, realistically speaking, in six weeks, it's very difficult for a new government uh, to institute everything, put all the measures in place and change things overnight. Okay. And like I pointed out, uh, even the police stations had all become the den of terrorists. Okay. So uh, the entire JNK police for the all for all practical purposes uh, was on the side of terrorists. Okay. So how are you going to fight? You know, even if you want, if you want to mobilize the army and deploy it, it's going to take several weeks. But at the same time, uh, I would hold VP Singh guilty too. Okay, because VP Singh uh, did not bother to respond to that. Okay, even after the genocide happened. Okay, and uh, prior to that, uh, you know, forming his own government, coalition government, VP Singh was uh, very much part of Congress for several years. Okay, and he was part of Rajiv Gandhi's uh, party. Okay, and in that sense, he we cannot absolve him of guilt. He was definitely guilty. Okay, now take uh, the BJP. BJP extended. Uh, support to the VP Singh government. Okay, so and it was out of compulsion. Okay, I think so. The so so the BJP extended support to uh, VP Singh primarily out of compulsion because uh, no party had the majority, and then you had to dethrone Congress, and then you had to, which was very important from a BJP perspective, but also from the Indian perspective because uh, Congress was primarily responsible for not only Khalistani terrorism but also for. Uh, Kashmiri Islamic terrorism. Okay, that happened throughout the eighties. Okay, but uh, BJP uh, is also uh, to some extent guilty. Okay, because even when it happened, uh, BJP could have carried out a massive campaign across country. Okay, to educate the people, uh, uh, because uh, uh, Kashmiri Hindus were very much Hindus, and uh, uh, they suffered primarily only because they were Hindus, and if uh, Muslims become majority in any other part of India, uh, or same is happening in Bangladesh. Hindus do suffer there also. There's genocide of Hindus happening in Bangladesh as well. Okay, so for all of these reasons, I think uh, BJP should have uh, carried out a campaign, okay, and uh, uh, educated the people, or at least put immense pressure on VP Singh, you know, forcing him to deploy the armed forces immediately uh, and uh, not uh, let. Uh, uh, Farooq Abdullah and all of these characters to continue to run the show there. Okay, to that extent they are guilty. However, uh, if they are two percent guilty, okay, VP Singh and BGP, BJP are two percent guilty in this, then Congress is Congress and Farooq Abdullah and uh, Pakistan are ninety eight percent guilty. Okay, because in throughout eighties, uh, especially when Jagmohan had been repeatedly writing, if uh, Rajiv Gandhi had acted, okay, and he had every reason to act, okay, because he had seen uh, Khalistani terrorism in Punjab, and he knew that it was spreading. The intelligence reports were uh, confirming that the Khalistani terrorism and the weapons are now getting routed through uh, Kashmir, and he should have acted. He did not, okay, and uh, uh, he should have sacked all of these characters, whether it's Farooq Abdullah, whether it's Mufti Muhammad Sayyid, and all of them. They were all terrorists themselves. They were the terror masterminds. Instead, he uh, installed them in positions of power in. Uh, the center as well as in Kashmir. Okay, so they were able to go out and release the terrorists, and then they were able to, you know, uh, 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 Farooq Abdullah resigns on the 18th and the 19th uh, of January. Uh, immediately, the very next day, calls are made from the from the mosques all over the state. Okay, and then the genocide is launched. So 
uh, in that case i would say rajiv gandhi uh, and uh, uh, farooq abdullah and then pakistan are 98% guilty but uh, you know uh, muslims the kashmiri muslims without their connivance without their collective participation their collective guilt none of this would have happened okay i would definitely hold them highly highly guilty for this uh, two questions uh, one is that uh, the liberals always tell us that uh, uh, hindus and muslims in any region have more in common with each other than hindus have in common with hindus from other regions so what is your comment on that and secondly uh, regarding bjp i would like to uh, tell you that uh, national conference was part of the second bjp government that uh, uh, stayed up to uh, 2004 that was in power until 2004 part of uh, uh, vajpayee's co- coalition so what is your so their guilt is not uh, you know 2% probably more that is what uh, i would like you to comment on thank you sure so sure, i'll start with the second question i think you know the 2% or 4 or 5 you know we can always debate those things right and uh, uh, it it's it's always going to be subjective opinion mine is subjective and so is yours i'm fine with that uh, but we both agree uh, there is an element of guilt right and you know uh, something like national congress should be held primarily guilty of uh, launching terrorism and uh, committing the genocide of hindus and hence one should have never had any truck with those okay so i understand uh, i agree with that and you know uh, real politic is not always justifiable and uh, there may have been compulsions why it was done because the alternative could have been worse in 2001 for example the alternative could have been more radical uh, uh, islamist government taking over kashmir and hence you know those defense considerations would have compelled uh, vajpayee to form such coalition but regardless i think from a thermic perspective i'll agree with you okay so that kind of real politics is not justifiable i had just gone and imposed uh, army rule uh, uh, governor's rule president's rule in kashmir even in 2001 if i had been vajpayee i am not vajpayee that's a different story now to your first question uh, hindus and muslims in a region have more in common than hindus between two regions of india okay let's break that into two parts the first part is something i'll completely agree with that's why i started you know the story with the sanskriti of kashmiris okay uh, both the muslims and uh, hindus in kashmir share the same culture they share the same heritage they have the same sanskriti that's why they have everything in common and if at all anything uh, islam is the sickness that uh, afflicted the kashmiri muslims only in the last few centuries okay it started in the 14th century and gradually increased and they became more and more radicalized it's a cancer they got in the last 5 or 600 years whereas the culture they have is thousands of years old so goes back to the vedic times they share the same common shaka okay uh, then when uh, panani refers to them as kashmir kashmirikas he makes uh, no difference no distinction among all of the people who are in, inhabitants of kashmir at that time so yes they have Uh, hindus and muslims of a particular region have a lot in common between them but we should not ignore the fact that the moment somebody gets converted to islam very quickly they get radicalized okay they start denying their heritage they start denying their sanskriti okay they start it's not us who are telling uh, hey you have got nothing to do with our culture we are actually going and telling the muslims we both share the same culture so don't give it up okay but the moment a muslim gets indoctrinated a muslim gets radicalized 
he starts shunning uh, hindu culture his own culture her own culture the culture of their own ancestors and then they start uh, deluding themselves that that heritage starts only in uh, 610 ce when mohammed started reading the revelation and they start pretending that or deluding themselves that the culture of arabia is their culture okay so so yes i will agree with the first one but with the important caveat and uh, you know uh, it's not enough for the leftists to make this argument uh, uh, only as a rhetoric they should go and tell this to every muslim and say by the way your sanskriti is same as that of the hindus that means the bharatanatyam you know the kathak the odissi then the uh, hindu classical music and all of these things the recitation of the vedas the ramayana the mahabharata they are all part of your culture as much as it is part of the hindu culture go and study these things they should start telling that to the muslims then the problem will completely disappear then uh, coming to the second question uh, do hindus from different regions of india have less in common between them uh, that i would disagree with okay so for example uh there are things that are different right you know languages for example okay uh, i am a tamil speaker and then somebody from uh, uh, assam or uh, uh, punjab would be speaking a different language assamese or punjabi okay our languages are different but uh, our sanskriti is not only defined by language okay it's not only defined by our cuisine it's defined by something much deeper uh, much deeper the uh notion of dharma okay then the uh, notion of what is sacred what unites all of us okay that's why uh, when you look at it you take for example among the vaishnava traditions there is something called the concept of divya desha okay so these divya desha are distributed all over india and uh, when you take a vaishnava he or she will travel to every one of them and then their goal is to visit every one of those during their lifetime or you take the yatris of india for example uh, kashi is a good example so you have kashi and uh, that's in you know today's uh, you know what is varanasi today and then uh, that's the vishwanatha temple then you go to uh, uttar kashi in the you know in the uttarakhand region so you have the same kashi vishwanatha temple then you go to kumbakonam in tamil nadu you have the kashi vishwanatha temple one is the uttar kashi the other is the dakshin kashi then you have the at the center you have the kashi vishwanatha mandir in varanasi so why is this happening the reason this is happening is um, hindus even in the bygone era even 2000 years ago 3000 years ago 4000 years ago knew that there are going to be always regional differences there are going to be linguistic differences and differences in terms of ethnicity and other things but there is something much deeper uh, which is part of our sanskriti which is rooted in dharma which unites all of us that's why an adi shankara who was born in kerala you know travels all the way to kashmir and then he preaches there and then you will have uh, you know someone like uh, shri chaitanya who was born in bengal he travels to odisha and he preaches in those days it would have been very long distance and then you have uh, someone like you know uh, uh, a sikh guru uh, like you know gobind singh ji he will go there and uh, he will meditate in the himalayas and all of these things happen right so uh, uh, so the uh, that's why it's very important for us to look deeper than the superficial differences and when you look, look deeper we actually hindus have lot in common and uh, uh, we are pretty seamlessly integrated uh first i would start with i think this is a very common myth which has been propagated that hindus and muslim in the same region are are very similar to each other i have grown up in a in a muslim majority area 
and i'll tell you in day to day life yes you are right mr venkat that heritage wise yes we have common heritage but day to day there are there are very very clear differences which will stare you in your face and it is true for both parties not just for hindus or not just for muslims for both of them i'll not go into details because of paucity of time but it's very clear that there are they we are very different from each other so, so let, uh, let me just react to that really quick so i think we are in uh, total agreement there in fact that's why i pointed out it's the sanskriti which is common right. but the moment a person is converted to islam uh, he or she is taught you know even before uh, that person attains the age of 8 that uh, being part of a muslim identity uh, is a denial of your hindu sanskriti okay so that's right. why you know uh, yeah so thank you and 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 actually let me build on it psychologically i think this is one reason why hindus who have converted to islam actually are more dangerous and dreadful than the original muslims because they have to demonstrate and prove that they have actually adopted the new thing completely by the core and the only thing which islam and quran teaches is violence mostly and that is why all of these people end up engaging into a violent mechanisms to prove that actually they have right you are abs- you are absolutely correct there in fact swami vivekananda said it better and i think uh, nobody can say it better than he did he said when a hindu uh, leaves the fold of hindu dharma it's not just a hindu less but an enemy the more exactly and and that goes back to what our first uh, uh, questioner i think ms indira if i remember the name correctly this is the reason why these people are so violent and why why whatever happened in kashmir actually happened in such a gruesome manner and it was as you rightly pointed out mr venkat i think it was all a very well planned thing which happened right from the uh, abdullah resigning uh, you know the all the cprf battalions being called into the city and 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 everything happening in the villages and remote areas to the exodus to the to the camps in jammu where they were actually set up to die again whosoever were remaining they will actually die again and i think state and all the powers who were there at that point in time they were all hand in glove with each other so it was a very well planned well thought out genocide as you rightly pointed out though uh, i i wonder actually what un so as to say or our human rights commission of india were doing and and, and all of that and which is which is a little perplexing but i think it's it's more point right it should not be so, perplexing because it should not be per- perplexing because the human rights commissions and you know human rights watch un and all these people they don't care about hindu victims okay so occasionally they may indulge in tokenism whether it is pakistani hindus whether it is bangladeshi hindus they are all victims of genocide same as kashmiri hindus right and these people don't care when you really push them to the wall they will make a token statement oh yes we sympathize with them but beyond they don't really care because hindus don't constitute their vote bank but something is even deeper uh, because there is a clear dichotomy between the abrahamic world view and the non abrahamic world view okay whether it is hindus or eastern religions or native american shamans and all of these things uh, these are all the non abrahamic world views these are totally different and whether it is un or the western world they are all whether they are practicing christians or muslims or not they are still shaped by an abrahamic world view so for them uh, our world view is something they cannot relate to and they don't care about as much and in fact uh, now that we have articulated why it was a genocide i expect united nations to go back and change the definition a little bit yeah uh, th- this is a question uh, about what you just said at the end of the, your response 
so you said that uh, hindus have a unity at a deeper level than you know superficialities which i completely agree with and for anybody who thinks you know this is obvious but somehow for whatever reasons uh, it doesn't seem to work on the ground in the sense that hindus in one region do not spontaneously go have not spontaneously gone maybe things will change for the better to the aid of hindus in some other uh, region i mean uh, don't you think that uh, deep connection is not very obvious to most hindus so so the reason it happens is you know uh, if you take that there's a very fundamental difference between uh, abrahamic religions and uh, dharmic religions right by dharmic religions i include hinduism jainism buddhism uh, sikhism and all of these religions right so there is one fundamental difference okay which is uh, for the most part uh, they are congregational we are not okay so meaning uh, you know f- for you uh, you know uh, you can you can find uh, a devout hindu who would have spent her entire life visiting only one temple right she would have visited that temple twice thrice a day and attended all the festivities there and then that so she is not really part of the congregation she may not even know the name of the priest in that temple okay because for us when we talk of uh, 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 you know adhyatma uh, uh, you know uh, 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 pursuits uh, what it really means is it's a very personal connect right and whether we connect to the divine or whether we uh, study a darshana like advaita or any one of these things these are very personal uh, quests for hindus okay and then uh, even when we attend a festival uh, something like a chariot festival or a village festival or any one of these things uh, in a temple uh, again there is festivity but it's not a congregation now contrast this with uh, islam or christianity they are very congregational religions okay uh, you know uh, you take a mosque probably a couple of thousand muslims attend the same mosque uh, every friday okay and uh, for the entire life but very important they listen to sermons from the same mullah all the time okay and then they are always kept on a tight leash and then they are uh, uh, radicalized then same with the christians okay the christians have to attend the same and the, uh, the priests will the christian pastors and uh, the padre they will check the attendance everything and in fact if they don't attend and if they don't fall in line uh, they won't even get admission in christian schools and other things right so this is the fundamental difference i think to me we sh- in in my opinion ramakrishnan ji we should not change the fundamental nature of hindu society okay the reason for that is uh, it, it is this fundamental nature which gives us the freedom okay why do we have so many darshanas okay we don't have just single scripture we have thousands of scriptures we don't have a single prophet but we have thousands of rishis okay and then uh, uh, you know um, there are so many pursuits whether it's yoga dhyana or uh, tantric techniques and all of these things which continue to evolve day in and day out and this is the beauty of hindu dharma because this is an inner quest and this is a, a lifestyle which is very comprehensive which includes arts which includes uh, music and everything architecture and all of these things i think we should not abandon that because if we become congregational then at some stage or the other we will become like the abrahamic religions instead what we should do is we should treat these abrahamic religions as cancers afflicting society and then we should initiate uh, legislative means to crack down on them okay nationalize their institutions their places of worships and everything and uh, make sure that over a period of time we do a garvapsi of those people by very dharmic means by very uh, legitimate means that's what i would recommend
just one uh, one um, comment on uh, the Karnataka government uh, freeing the temples from the government control. And uh, just my wish is that it happens in other states as well, and uh, that all that um, money that uh, was could be used now to open up uh, kurukuls in within the complex of the temples and uh, used for hospitals for the poor people of the Hindu poor people and uh, um, dharmshalas or whatever you know who you know which which Hindus need to be accommodated for, and that's my hope and pray you know that this is how the money would be used at least starting off in karnataka i don't know how it will follow in the other states but i hope that that what happens and on another note you know ambedkarji was right it should have been an exchange of population we wouldn't right. be seeing all this now you know but then, that's great yeah that's, that's right. right yeah i agree I, I think there was a question in chat from ramakshanji about uh a Sikh congregation. I think you are referring to the Khalistani movement. And uh, uh, let me briefly touch about this. So, you know, Sikh separatism is relatively recent. And, you know, uh, our Punjabi friends on this would know that. So, I mean, even today, uh, Sikhs and Hindus in Punjab do intermarry. Okay. And it's very common. Okay. And then uh, you will find if you, uh, let's say, for example, undertake the uh, Chardam Yatra, it is very traditional for uh, Hindus on the way when you go to Gobind Ghat and then from there they will proceed to Hemkun Sahib and then you know they will take a darshan and then they will come back and of course only those who can walk because I think it's what 20-22 kilometers of trekking so most uh, Indians have become lazy uh, in the current generation so most don't do that okay you know but uh, if you just uh, uh, look at people who are traditional they still do that and then uh, similarly the Sikhs who are visiting that they will from that proceed to Badrinath and then they will take a darshan and come back this is common even today and uh, uh, so talking of the Sikh separatism it's a, a relatively recent phenomenon okay it starts in around the 1890s okay there was a fellow by name Arur Singh okay and then he wrote a book called Hum Hindu Nahi Hai okay and then the reason for that was he was a, a British bootlicker right and then he was the person after the Jalian Wallabag massacre when you know the uh, uh, when uh, Dyer was being uh, questioned by the British Parliament uh, he wrote letters to him to the parliament saying that you know uh, he absolved general dyer and then he invited dyer to the golden temple and gave him an honorary uh, uh, you know uh, made him an honorary sikh and all these things he did right so and then uh, the reason for that was it was this hum hindu nahi hai was a very small section of sikhs uh, who subscribed to that at that point in time and now Fast forward to the 1930s to 1960s, 70s, you know, uh, one good example in the United States is uh, Dilip Singh song. Okay, so he uh, uh, wrote a book called My Mother India. Okay, so he was the first non-Abrahamic to become a congressman in the US. Okay, he became a congressman in the 50s, I think, sometimes in the 1950s. Okay, so and then uh, he writes of My Mother India and throughout the book, he refers himself to as Hindu. Okay. And he says, our Hindu dharam, our Hindu dharam, our Hindu dharam. That's what he repeatedly talks about. He's a Sikh. He was a Sikh. Okay. And then, so the point is, you know, uh, Sikh being a separate identity is of a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, uh, it got a little bit more accentuated and a little bit more uh, radicalized in the Khalistani movement. Uh, but the 
threat is real i am not saying the threat is non existent uh, you know uh, to some extent it does exist in some of the gurudwaras more in the western world but to some extent even in uh, punjab in india but at the end of the day i think that threat we need to deal with uh, not the way uh, indira gandhi and others dealt with it but uh, you know more uh, by going back to the roots because uh, when you look at the sikh gurus uh, they uh, called themselves uh hindu leaders okay and then uh, someone like you know take bahadur and others they call themselves hindu leaders and then arjan dev and others they call themselves hindu leaders and then when the mughals uh behead some of the sikh gurus that's what they call them they call them uh, you are a leader of hindus those are the letters they write to them and say as a leader of hindus you know you have done this this is which is against islam okay that's how they list the charges okay so i think we should not lose uh, sight of this important Uh, continuity and uh, yield to a little bit of the separatism that's a, that's the point i make uh ravi ji is asking what's the point in promoting this credo of a quran in one hand and laptop in another if the educated muslims are following the same path as the radicals the comments on that please so i, I think what's the alternative okay so the, so the alternatives look at the alternatives right? the alternative is uh if there had been a complete population exchange as uh, ambedkar argued for uh, i think uh, it would have been a different story okay then uh, you know uh, all of pakistan would be a total basket case and uh, india could have progressed uh, way more without dealing with these kind of problems but we have we are dealing with the reality okay the reality is india has what 13 14% or 15% muslim population okay now this population uh, if we don't modernize them okay and then if we don't uh, make them part of the mainstream okay it's going to be Uh, problematic because then they are going to come under the increasing influence of the mullahs and then the radical forces the madrasas and others and that will be even worse okay and then uh, second thing to look at right and uh, you know there is a very interesting online conversation between uh, yasir qadi and zakir naik okay so zakir naik most of you are probably familiar with you know he is a, a radical and you know he is a fundamentalist a bigot you name it every every one of those things and you know uh, he is wanted by the indian government and he is siding in malaysia right now okay and yasir qadi is on the other hand is a, a ultra fundamentalist muslim imam okay he is a pakistani american muslim imam and uh, but also a very very well respected scholar okay he went to the university of madina he studies there for several years and then uh, yale university and uh, you know he's an academic everything and he's a highly respected scholar too okay among among the muslims okay and and, and even among the academics i would say so they both have a conversation where they talk about apostasy in islam okay so they talk about uh, when even in countries like saudi arabia when they come into contact with outside world more than 25% of them become apostates okay i think this number is uh, true because i am working with a lot of uh, ex muslims or those who are only nominal muslims okay you know who are based in pakistan and other places and they do point out the same thing they say you know among the muslims uh, in places like pakistan there is a huge discontent okay uh, because they do see the contrast right they see the contrast between india and pakistan okay so you know uh, india has progressed economically uh, india has progressed as society we have freedom okay and then uh, you know india has built phenomenally good institutions it's a power to reckon with okay uh, 1947 both countries became independent and both countries were in abject poverty but 
look at india today you know india is talking of building at 5 trillion dollar economy india is launching uh, rockets in fact isr launches more rockets than uh, nasa or any or all the space agencies in the world combined okay and india's education system is one of the uh, most sought after in the world and all of these things right so so india is a powerhouse okay so so they see the difference and then think of it also you know i have had uh, and in in the future i plan to bring out a series of videos on this and you know what if you are a muslim man or a woman okay living in a place like pakistan okay so you cannot speak up against the religion you don't uh, a lot of those things don't resonate with you because unlike in the past today you have your iphone at your fingertip and you have your social media and you can actually listen to a lecture by uh, sadguru right of uh, isha uh, foundation okay and then in those 5 minutes the arguments he makes are so powerful and they resonate with someone who's a pakistani muslim they start thinking okay you know they subconsciously start contrasting this with what they hear from their mullahs okay and then uh, then they you know uh, and this also the age of the internet right and then when they start searching they can type words like vedanta and then they can start reading upon something like uh, what shankara wrote and other things and they start seeing the difference okay you know there is on the one hand uh, one religion is very dogmatic the other is not one religion accords freedom others doesn't and then uh, uh, society which follows one religion is progressing and enjoying more freedom and uh, the other one which is following islam is uh, stagnating they see that so there is discontent i think uh, we are looking at an inflection point where uh, we can actually reach out and uh, 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 weaken islam or even make it go away okay because without any of our effort if 25% of the muslims uh, are apostatizing even in muslim countries i think with some effort this can get better and i think this is where i think some uh, all hindu should familiarize themselves with some of the uh, recent researches it's called uh it's it's about which just came out in the last uh, two years it's about the direction of the early islamic qiblas okay by dan gibson okay so you know every mosque you go to there is a prayer wall it's called qibla okay so the prayer wall uh, faces in the direction of mecca okay uh, you have to pray towards mecca okay that's why every mosque will have it okay and then this comes from a quranic uh, revelation okay which was revealed i think around 624 ce or something okay around that time okay we say before that according to islam people are praying in the direction of uh, jerusalem but then there is a verse from allah that says uh, henceforth pray in the direction of mecca that's why the qibla walls were created so which means from 624 ce uh, that's the last eight years of muhammad's prophetic career and beyond you should not come across a single mosque where the qibla wall faces in any other direction so dan gibson has done a phenomenally good research and it's called Uh, early islamic qiblas qibla is spelled as k sorry q i b l a or q i b l a h okay uh, early islamic qibla okay so he points out for the first 130 140 years 150 years every single mosque is facing in a different direction other than mecca okay in fact all of them are facing in the direction of petra okay now if really a quranic verse had been revealed by allah in 624 this could not have happened okay they no muslim would have built a mosque facing in a different direction they would have all started facing mecca but this actually tells you that the quranic verses were not revealed in that time okay and then they were revealed much much later then it brings into this brings into question uh, uh, around the very historicity of muhammad himself okay did muhammad exist or were all these stories concocted 
in the 8th 9th century and then uh, retroactively projected on a mythical or a semi historical muhammad of a bygone era okay so if this kind of uh, findings are uh, made popular it will be very difficult for muslims to uh, deny uh, the truth and uh, refuse to confront islam okay because once you challenge the very authenticity of the quran and the and the prophet muhammad which are very easy to do in my opinion a lot of scholars have done it but just that the leftist media doesn't let all those things come into the public view but then we hindus should take up the initiative of doing uh, sir i had a question about foreign invasions sir we see uh, the kushana period the shaka invasion but the case of islamic invasion was very much different the uh, the way the idols were replaced in favor of all islamic ones so the case of islamic invasion was very much different even before islam we had foreign invasions but such was such use of sex slavery was not there so right. how do you view this and in like we see sam huntington putting it as clash of civilizations so how do you view it is it is in a way a clash clash of civilizations that's a very good question by the way and you know so the kushanas came from the outside right and then uh, sometimes it can be argued that uh, you know uh, some other groups for example like the uh, jats some of the gurjars may have also had some central asian connections we do not know for certain uh, but that's quite a possibility uh, uh, so because some of the uh, genetic evidence seems to suggest that they may have central asian connection the same with the rajputs too so when all of them came uh, there is a fundamental difference between uh, abrahamic religions and non abrahamic religions okay in non abrahamic religions uh, everything is sacred right your nature is sacred your rivers are sacred the place where you live is sacred okay so the flora the fauna everything is sacred so that's why they have uh, deities that are for different purposes there is a deity for rain okay and this you will find in every culture which is non abrahamic then you have a deity for learning you have a deity for fertility and then all of these things you have deity for agriculture and deity for uh, warfare and protection and all of these things so when the kushanas and others came into india okay they were not bringing one monotheistic deity and imposing it on others okay so they knew that you know if i'm going to a different place you know i will come across another deity that is going to be the local guardian okay and uh, i am going to worship a different river i am going to treat a different uh, vana or a forest as sacred okay so they were easily able to adapt okay that's number one then number two uh, in all of the non abrahamic traditions your uh, uh, samskaras and then your sanskriti is also very closely related to your jati okay so you know you from your birth to your funerary rites you perform all of these things according to your jati traditions and non abrahamic religions don't try to change it okay so when when people come from uh, some other geography and then they settle down in india whether as invaders or whether as traders or anything they can just continue to follow their sanskriti and then you know they can follow their own old samskaras and nobody will force it uh, or force them to change right it's dharma that connects everyone whereas in the case of abrahamic religions abrahamic religions are monotheistic but what is monotheism monotheism is about denial of every other divinity and every other deity and everything else that's that the world considers sacred okay and replace all of that with that one intolerant and jealous god of abrahamic religions this is true of 
Judaism, this is true of Christianity, this is true of Islam. Since we are talking about Islam in today's context, when Islam comes, they come with the same mindset, right? Uh, you know, Allah is the only God, Muhammad is the only prophet, uh, final prophet, and then uh, Quran is the only scripture, and then uh, idol worship uh, has to be, uh, 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 you know, suppressed, has to be rooted out, and, you know, Hinduism has to be rooted out, and that's why you have this concept of uh, Ghazwai Hind. Right, and then uh, for them it's a sacred duty. And then when they, so for all the others when they invaded Kushans or anyone when they invaded, they just came as invaders uh, for political reasons. Right, they wanted to expand their kingdom. That's all. Or they got kicked out of Central Asia somewhere, and then they came to India, and then they founded a new kingdom. That's it. Okay. So, but in the case of Islam, uh, you know, it is uh, that did I desire to establish Darul Islam and Darul Islam is the world of Islam and it gets established only when you obliterate the Darul Harb which is the world of the infidels okay so in other words it's your religious duty and it's your mission and it's your goal to root out Hinduism Buddhism Jainism and Sikhism and all of these religions destroy the temples their gompas their Gurdwaras and everything and you know burn their scriptures and uh, you know uh, uh, destroy their temples and you know uh, uh, kill their people when they refuse to convert and then impose jizya upon them uh, as a, a temporary uh, uh, you know uh, workaround and then finally hope to impose Islam and only Islam on the rest of society. So that's why you find this kind of fanatical zeal when Muslims come. It's not it has got nothing to do with where they came from. It's not about whether they were Central Asians, whether they were uh, uh, Turks or whether they were uh, Turkish or any one of these things. It was because of the Islamic doctrines and the Islamic teachings.